This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by McDonald's. It's been it's been a while since we've had the clown in the pod room. The clown's making an appearance this week. What's uh, long, what's the what's the big event that we brought the clown in? They announced that they are giving away I think vouchers for TSA workers in the O'Hare Airport, which a lot of restaurant companies are doing similar programs around the country. And you know, many airports, HMS Host has a big national program as well. I think so. A lot of restaurants stepping up to provide food for TSA workers that are not getting paid right now. Do you view that as kind of entering the political fray a little bit? I do not. I view it as helping out probably customers. I would suspect a lot of these employees are also customers of these companies. You know, to the extent that anything can be viewed as political these days, it is. But you know, this is these are folks that need they need a meal, they need food, and restaurants are stepping up to provide them to provide them food. I think it's about as apolitical as you can get to be any part of this conversation. I, I, I view it as I view it as, as political. I view it as more political probably than most, but it's kind of almost like you're picking a side. If you know, it's I think public opinion. Even the president has said this is his shutdown. Public opinion squarely puts it on the lap of the other Republicans. And to weigh into this and reach out to the kind of the victims of it, some of the more, more visible victims, to me, is kind of almost taking sides. So I was I was kind of surprised, especially a company like McDonald's that is so brand risk averse, uh, jump into this stuff. And I was I was just kind of surprised when you when you go to McDonald's, Franklin. What is what do we have in the day? I always go with the two cheeseburger meal. That is that is my my go-to. Speaking of risk averse, which I think is off the menu by the way now, but oh, really? they always have it. Speaking of risk adverse, they are not risk adverse when it comes to their embrace of bacon. Did you see the announcement of the bacon hour from four to five on on days you can get bacon added to any sandwich for free? I saw the headline, but I didn't get into the details. I was waiting for Burger King to uh, one up them with a with a larger promotion, and then I would learn about both of them all the same go. Well, so. interesting. I'm a traditionalist. I love the Big Mac. I love the large fries in that beautiful container, and some reason I've always I've always gotten a vanilla shake at McDonald's. I just love the shakes. All I have is Die Hard. I go with the McFlurry. McFlurries aren't good too. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution, and we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast. The brightest news star in the Democratic congressional galaxy is a former server and bartender, and her agenda is becoming the party's agenda. We'll take a look at what impact Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez may have on her old employers and colleagues in the restaurant industry. And under the heading, No Good Deed Goes Unpunished, we'll discuss the events that led to Starbucks' new needle disposal program and what may lay ahead for them and others who follow. We'll talk about those stories and then wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line partners, Carson Chandler, Franklin Coley, and as always, up in the D.C. bubble, Joe Renzel. So we've had a running debate in our office this week, including our bubble office up in Washington, D.C. with Joe Renzel, um, regarding one of the newest members of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is become something of a somewhat between a media phenomenon and a media darling. And our debate, internal debate, has been you know, what has been the real impact of this particular star, if you will, rising star of the Democratic Party? Is it fleeting? Is she really moving the conversation? Is it just the flavor of the month? And 
two months from now, we'll be talking about something else. So to our listeners, this has been a raging debate all week. Franklin Coley, I'm going to give you the floor and you tell our listeners why they should or should not be paying attention to Representative Cortez or as social media in the world likes to say, AOC. AOC. So my position is that AOC is changing and moving the dialogue and Time may tell that, you know, this is a flash in the pan, but as of right now, uh, she is having a substantial impact. I think one of the articles that kind of pushed me in that direction was there was a Bloomberg piece that talked about the Overton window, which is this window of reasonable policy outcomes, right? And the kind of political spectrum, what is in within the realm of the possible, and the extremes on either end are not within the realm of the possible, but the policy proposals that fall within that window are achievable. And the article is basically making the argument that AOC has kind of moved that window and pulled that window to the left on a number of key issues. And I would argue that she has really just inherited the mantle from Bernie Sanders and the Fight for 15 campaign and some other efforts over the past five or 10 years that have have kind of moved that window. You know, she's a democratic socialist. You know, she is a young, fresh face. She has a big following on social media for a couple different reasons. And her following is uh, much larger than Pelosi or Schumer or any of the other, you know, kind of Democrat figureheads, right? But, uh, you know, she's kind of followed as uh, being a truth teller and kind of a maverick. And uh, I think for that reason, she's going to get a pass in some things, just like kind of John McCain, when he was running as the maverick outsider, got a pass in some things, just as Donald Trump has got some passes on passes, plural, on things on the campaign trail. I think she will get some passes. I think she will continue to, to move the dialogue. I think she will energize that left of center kind of coalition um, and she will become their voice and figurehead. Now, she may fade in the background and, you know, Beto may start to fill that role. That outside lane is going to be filled by someone. I think right now she's doing a better job than anyone else to, to be a figurehead to help move the national dialogue. And I do think she's having an impact and I don't see that changing, but it, it very certainly could. Joe Renzel, as, as you work your way across the Capitol, one speakeasy at a time. What are what are your colleagues in Washington D.C.? What what is your peer group saying in terms of? And I'm not talking about elected officials. I'm talking about the unelected, the lobbying core, and the the the, the business community advocates up in D.C. What are they saying about her? Can we can we pause on the speakeasy piece? Because you just betrayed your age, there, buddy. Prohibition's over. We got we got bars and restaurants now. Actually, the the, the speakeasies are coming back in. They're coming back in to vote. Right, I'm right. on the cutting edge, Joe, as always. Joe Kefauver, super hipster. Got it. I'm gonna start borrowing your skinny Euro pants pretty soon here. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. But listen, we got. Um, I, you know, I hate to agree with Franklin on a regular basis, but you know, I think she does have a legitimate staying power. I think the way she's engaging, you know, it's not just about her followers it's about the way she's engaging and the way she's going right at it and you know directly you know screenshots of Hannity's programs and when they're criticizing her and you know coming right at it um, with some humor and some fact-based uh, knowledge I think you know perhaps she missed a step on some some uh, you know talking points associated with this marginal tax rate etc but now that she's in she's surrounding herself with with smart folks that can help guide you know, a more specific policy discussion. But I do agree she is opening 
the window on some particularly around wealth equity. Obviously, that's one of her standard bearing issues that she's talking through and really focusing an argument that really hasn't been around for a couple decades now in terms of what the responsibility is of the upper class wealth, you know, within this country and equating it to, you know, the long term viability of democracy. I mean, really just kind of big thinking ideas here. I also think she's in an advantageous situation in that she's super smart. You know, she came in, she was the first thing she did. She said participated in a sit-in in, in, uh, in, uh, in at the time, uh, then to be Speaker Pelosi's office over climate issues. And did she, you know, rant and rave there and, you know, get handcuffed and walk out and get arrested? No. She ended up with a sit-down meeting with Pelosi and lo and behold, here she is, a freshman legislator with a seat on the oversight committee. I mean, I think she's she understands the process and understands how to leverage her support. And, you know, the last point I'll make is that she's in a position as we enter into the 2020 cycle where she's obviously, you know, constitutionally too young to be on a ballot for president, but she is going to serve wow. that bastion of that liberal left, you know, social, whatever label we want to put on it. She's going to be that platform from a policy perspective, kind of keeping those candidates leaning that direction and i think she's going to be somewhat of an enforcer in that in that realm she will be a highly highly maybe the most highly sought after early endorsement for democrats in the presidential primary that would be a huge endorsement to secure and kind of shore up that that left flank and that that speaks to kind of the the power broker and the position she's in right now well i'm gonna play the crusty, old, cynical, like the old guys. This, this is going to be a stretch. I know. Believe it or not. <laughs> this is going to be a stretch. Believe it or not. Like the, the old guys in the balcony, the Muppets. Okay. Hipster. I, hipster. I, wait, You're on. a hipster. I have trouble visualizing that. Let me, let me, let okay. me stretch my imagination but, 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 to its absolute limits. But, but please understand that nobody had heard of this young lady before September of last year when she won unexpectedly won her primary against a longtime incumbent. So this woman has now been on the national stage five months, and she's become a rock star in five months. And she's 28 years old. And I, if I'm going to Vegas, I'm going to bet that the instant spotlight and the bright lights are going to take their toll on her fairly quickly, and she's going to say and do some really stupid, naive things that are going to undermine her little rock star status. we got plenty of members of Congress that – have had staying power for a very long time saying out-of-the-box strident things. Maxine Waters comes to mind on that. doesn't mean they're effective, and it doesn't mean that people over time don't stop paying attention to them. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be from Missouri here. you got to show me. I, I can't believe that our media machine has taken this person who was tending bar and waiting tables a year and a half ago and made her the iconic face of the progressive movement in the United States of America. I'm kind of calling, you know what, on that. So I'm going to take the, take I'm going, I'm taking the under. I know you guys are excited about her, but I will not be surprised when, when, when she steps in it and undermines fairly quickly just from arrogance and hubris this whole this whole thing. So I, and I can't believe. Secondly, another point, I can't believe that the Democratic Party has gotten to a point where a 28-year-old novice is their national standard bearer on core issues of the progressive wing of the party. I, I, I sit back and just, I'm just astounded by the whole phenomenon. 
and it's so, the power of popular media that you know has exalted this person to status. So I, I, I do not, I do not disagree with the fact that you know potentially there could be some major controversy where she flames out tomorrow. That's certainly within the realm of the possible, but she has played a smart hand since she has won an election, and um, I, I think has demonstrated a little acumen in that space. I will also say this that we are in this environment now today where we are more apt and voters and the American public is putting increasing kind of enthusiasm and trust into persons that do not have a political record and a long-standing political resume and are coming off the bench from you know seemingly nowhere and in, into the center of these um, being entrusted with with a lot of responsibility to lead on a lot of issues. And and that is a dynamic that we're just seeing happen more often. And I think uh, AOC is is just representative of that kind of that trend line. Joe Renzel. I just, I, I wanted to take up one of the points you made about kind of the Democrat establishment kind of pointing to her and leaning on her as a, as a centerpiece. I actually think that's really smart. If you're, you know, now in leadership controlling the House, you're Pelosi, you're Stenner, you're, you know, your criticism is that you're elderly person, not not quite as old as Keith Offer, but, you know, up there. Yeah, and and I think they're That's driving good, um, a conversation where they can point to AOC and, and kind of not use her, but understand what dynamic she plays and have that be a little bit of a defender so that they don't have to stand up and say, you know, here, we're the front people on the entire you know, far left agenda. Um, they can be influenced by it as they see fit, but they can also attempt at least um, to, to drive that middle ground and govern. And and I think it actually gives them a, a bit of strength over the long term. I think inherent what you're saying is if she if she burns out and better takes her place, then, you know, all the better, right? She's somewhat expendable and she plays a, a role to kind of rally and, and bring the left together and then allow the adults to... Uh, to kind of govern a but, little bit. But eventually, she's still going to be judged. She's a, a member of Congress from a district uh, borough of New York City, and she is going to be ultimately judged by her ability to solve problems in that borough and to build bring federal dollars to that subway system and federal dollars to those bridges and bring home the bacon like I, every other member think, of Congress. I don't think she's going to have... I, she is going to be better positioned than any other. Really, you think Mitch McConnell and the boys are going to sign off on her appropriation requests no, as they come as they come across she's already, the Senate? She's been given a leadership post. I mean, she's she's already she's got more stature within the freshman class than than most freshmen would have within her caucus. So I, I think she's got as good a shot as anybody in that regard. I just think we're in an era of of instant gratification. You know, the the flavor of the month, flavor of the day, and we'll we'll see in a year. If she can withstand, if an unproven 28-year-old can withstand the bright lights, I'd be very surprised. Don't mess to with be the girl continued. from the Bronx. What's that? To be Don't continued. mess with the girl from the Bronx. All right, well, I guess that won't be the last word. Joe Renzel, this last week you flagged an interesting article uh, that appeared in, in Nation's Restaurant News having to do with our friends out in the Pacific Northwest, Starbucks, and installing needle disposal boxes in their bathrooms. It was a response to an online petition, you know, from, from employees and so forth. Give me your take. How do we get to this? How do we get here? Walk us through this. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting point from my perspective, and I, I I think first of all, this isn't just about Starbucks. This is about a lot of different operators across the country, whether we're talking about retail or restaurants and others, where public access is is inevitable. Uh, it's part of you know the, attracting consumers and whatnot and serving their needs. This Starbucks specific one, you know, folks will recall the controversy they ran into in Philadelphia. Um, where there was a lot, and we talked about it on the pod in terms of the reaction from corporate and the speed with which they reacted and the level um, of, of conversation that they engaged in, we, we applauded it. Um, and that one of the kind of after effects of that was a policy change to allow uh, the general public to use the facilities uh, in, the, in the Starbucks across the country, you know, whether they're paying customers or not. And obviously, when we combine that issue up with the ongoing opioid epidemic that this country is facing, particularly in urban areas, although it is it does obviously exist across the country, this becomes a bit of a liability in terms of we've heard reports of, of individuals coming into bathrooms uh, in facilities like this, whether we're talking about a Walmart or Starbucks or another uh, kind of operator and using drugs in those uh, bathrooms because they know if they have a medical emergency or an overdose that someone will find them. Um, it's a bit of a safer place than maybe some of the other options that folks might have, particularly those that may be homeless. Um, a very serious issue, you know, very uh, impactful from a societal perspective. I think the question I have and, and for debate here and why I flag the article is, you know, now we have a situation where Starbucks is is more than just inviting. You know, they're providing uh, these take back from a needle perspective, um, which is sanitary. And there's a lot of studies behind this. And I'm not debating that. My question is kind of how does Starbucks then respond from a liability perspective and do other other? Is this a trend? Is Are restaurants following suit uh, in this realm? And what is the liability issue that they're going to have moving forward? Um, and, and, and is this really the right thing to do? And I don't know that I have an answer, but I can imagine a lot of very uh, tragic uh, scenarios playing out maybe on a, on a faster, more frequent basis uh, than they have in the past. And, and does the next step from an operator perspective in a given Starbucks, do you have to have you know, medical personnel on, on call? I mean, you know, are you having a hotline into EMS? You know, I mean, what kind of operations are you putting around this announcement to get to a place where you have uh, safety and, and you've solved any liability concerns? And, and just to highlight one thing, and I, I think maybe Joe touched in this, but you know, the, the thing that prompted Starbucks to act in the space is a number of employees, I think three, were actually stuck by needles when they were cleaning up trash in the bathroom. So Starbucks opened up bathrooms to all persons, whether they're customers or not. Bathrooms started becoming places, um, you know, word guide out, if you will. And, and you know, uh, I guess presumably more persons were going in there to use drugs and now employees are getting stuck as a result. So Starbucks in reaction, which you have to protect not only your customers, but your employees first priority, right, is considering putting these needle boxes in, which again is likely probably to attract more drug users into bathrooms. But so Starbucks is caught in a very tough position here. And it's one that other employers should be aware of and watching because it's very well something that could be happening in your restaurant or retail location and, and you're going to be put in this position. The fact of an employee, just the thought of an employee getting stuck by a needle and what the potential implications of that could be, you know, 
for their long-term health is just a scary proposition, and um, I think Starbucks has to do this. Well, let me let me play let me play devil's advocate on this, and and I'm I'm not advocating this at all. I'm just throwing it on the table for argument's sake. But for the companies that you know, as Joe pointed out, Starbucks went down this path of an open bathroom right. based on that incident in Philadelphia, correct? Right. right? Correct. You can see, you know, the, the conversations in C-suites and yep. HR departments across restaurants, retail, you know. That's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. Right. And if, if I'm a general counsel at restaurant company X, right. I've got to look at this and go, see, this is why, this is, this is why we didn't do that. And my point, I guess I'm asking is, does this help their public talking points, their messaging when the reporter, when there's an incident at Restaurant X and they don't go down the road that Starbucks did, does this bolster their messaging and saying, see what happens when you open up your bathroom to a public restroom? This is what Starbucks's experience was been, has been. Does it not? Potentially. I would say potentially, yes. It's almost like operators are just forced with a lot of bad decisions in this space, right? And I, I think the reason why Joe was putting it on everyone's radar and why I would put it on everyone's radar is, you know, there are not a lot of good answers here, but you have to be able to have explained why you've come to the decisions that you've come to and why that is in the interest of protecting your employees. employees. Yeah. And the customers too, right? And so whether or not you allow non-patrons or, or, or non-customers in, in to use your bathrooms, I think you need to have a well-articulated reason for doing so. And um, this certainly is is a consideration for operators and something that should go into that, in, into the kind of that analysis. The, you know, the other thing that's kind of a related topic, and we talked about this before, is, you know, a lot of companies are loosening kind of drug testing standards around, uh, related to their hiring practices. And part of this is driven by the fact that many states are decriminalizing uh, marijuana. And so, you know, potentially you may have more employees that are engaging in activities like this, and that presents a whole new set of challenges and concerns, and, um, you know, particularly when you're, you're putting in boxes like this. So it is, a, it is a tough time to be a practitioner, to be an operator. and It's almost kind of damn if you do, damn if you don't. You need to be clearly working with your public affairs team to think through how you will explain your decision-making process publicly as you tackle these these kind of thorny issues. Never a dull moment. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, we start with wages. And in the absence of bubble boy Joe Renzel Franklin, busy week on the wage front across the Yeah, I'm going to take a deep breath to make it through these. Yeah. So my old homestead of Arkansas, what's going on out there? If you'll remember, there was a minimum wage measure in the ballot this last go-around, um, moving the wage. I think it's graduated, but it's up to $11 an hour right now. Um, there is a bill working through the Arkansas legislature that would establish a youth wage and exempt some small businesses. So essentially what they're doing is what we've seen in other states, Maine and uh, Michigan and others where something's been passed in the ballot, and D.C. in fact, and they've gone back and the legislative body has reviewed it and kind of tweaked it and and cleaned it up a little bit to help employers out. That's happening in Arkansas. But again, it's the legislature going back in and and editing things the voters passed, so we're seeing a lot more of that. Uh, Franklin, switching to switching to here to in Florida and actually in Orlando, 
Minimum wage again. Yep. Uh, the Florida legislature probably is going to want to do that after the 2020 cycle, but they will not be able to, or at least will not be able to easily, because in Florida, there is a constitutional amendment being pushed to be put in the ballot for a $15 an hour minimum wage. This is being uh, pursued by a uh, wealthy and prominent uh, trial attorney, John Morgan, who just put a for the people. For the people, pound law, which became uh, the uh, the phrase of the congressional Democrats last cycle, and now I think Kamala Harris for her presidential run. Kamala Harris, yeah, adopted for the people. That was John Morgan. John Morgan, we're we're getting your uh, your copyright, your trademark in there. So um, he just pushed successfully a medical marijuana initiative in the state. It was approved by voters. Bottom line, he has the money, kind of the wherewithal, the organizational infrastructure, and the motivation to put this fifteen dollar an hour measure on the ballot um, that would increase the state's minimum wage to fifteen by twenty twenty six, and that is a, a big, it's a whopper of a jump from where it is now. At around 8:50, and a little more modest uh, conversation in New Mexico uh, legislation out there. Yeah, and um, you know we have the kind of the blue trifecta out there, so we'd expect some legislation. It's uh, this is a a relatively big jump for New Mexico, but probably not as as steep as it could be. So it's twelve dollars an hour by 2021. Future increases tied to inflation. It is working its way. Through the process, um, I guess it also noted it would eliminate the tip credit, and uh, there's no preemption, so it would allow municipalities to get in the game here as well. I think the industry really needs to pay attention to this one. That the the twelve dollar wage is a is a big enough issue, but eliminating the tip credit and the the, the political dynamics are right for that to happen, and this is a, a critical one for the industry. Yep. So something to watch, and something's going to pass there, and. You know, so we'll see what the final form looks like. New Jersey, same situation. Something's going to pass there. We've reported before that a compromise had been hammered out. Now we know what that looks like. It is written into the legislation, so it is all kind of firmed up, um, save any, any last-minute tweaks. But right now we're sitting at $15 an hour about 2024, um, and that will start increasing July 1 of this year to $10 an hour. It will incrementally kind of phase out the tip credit and and you know that'll put by 2024 we will be to 513 an hour whereas right now we're at the federal minimum and the training wages included in that there isn't I think an agricultural worker exemption is as well they have a, a different phase in uh, but yeah it looks like this is more or less a done deal in New Jersey at this point but there was uh, some good news in Virginia not completely unexpected yeah, there was a minimum wage bill, $15 an hour bill, working its way through the legislature there. Um, it was defeated. It is a tight partisan count in that legislature. You know, discussion had been that both sides wanted to get the other side on record voting for it so that Republicans and Democrats could go th- both go out and campaign on the issues. So um, that conversation is not over in Virginia. And depending on what happens in that selection cycle or two, you can see it popping back up. So switching to wage theft, um, some news out of the great state of New York, the Knickerbocker State. So we talked, I guess it was last week or the week before, that the governor announced in his budget rollout that wage theft was going to be a priority, and he was going to be putting more money towards that. We now have state legislation rolled out as well 
that would add increased penalties and, and specifically create a new misdemeanor uh, misdemeanor category. So the way that it's worked previously is if you engage in multiple wage theft events, then you could be it'd be a felony, and quite frankly, you go to jail. And Schneiderman and others had jailed franchisees that had systematically engaged in wage theft. Now it will be a misdemeanor for one count of wage theft. So this is pretty pretty steep penalties. Yeah, I remember it was the it was a it was a Papa John's franchisee, if I remember correctly, who got in a big big pile of trouble up there under the previous uh, attorney general. And Franklin, switching gears to to pay equity, one of the things we said in you know 2018 was the the, the year of the woman, and 20, which would lead in 2019 to the year of those women's issues. And we said we've been saying forever, the top of that list will be pay equity. Uh, will be at the top of that agenda, and especially in these new blue trifecta states. And right on cue, here it is in Colorado, new blue trifecta, and we're talking about pay equity. So what happened out there? Yeah, Colorado already has um, an equal pay or pay equity law in the books, which is kind of similar to, I don't know, a quarter or half the states have some sort of statute in the books that is equal pay for equal work, and that's what Colorado's existing law was. There is now um, legislation making its way through the, uh, the legislature there that would take that a step further. And there's only a few states that have taken this step. And that would be requiring equal pay for, quote, substantially similar work. So it kind of, it lowers the threshold. It also creates a private right of action in the state on this issue, which is really important. Wow. And that is important. And, and I, don't, I don't know exactly how this would work. This definitely deserves some, some more attention, but it seems to be setting up some, something similar to the, the, the pay ban requirement that was vetoed in California that we saw at the federal level. And I'm just kind of reading it out of the legislation here, but it requires any wage deferentials between employees be based upon uh, a couple items, a seniority system, a merit system, or a system that measures earning by quantity or quality of production each of these factors reasonably relied upon must explain the entire differential. So this is going to be really tough for employers. These types of requirements are going to, quite frankly, put a mandate on the employer that they have to be tracking and explaining and justifying any wage differentials in their in their workforce. And that's going to be a real challenge. Um, Switching gears to to paid leave, um, as I said in, uh, in an article this week in, in Nation's Restaurant News, I, I think there will be there's no issue that will look different at the end of 2019 than at the beginning of 2019 than paid leave. There's going to be more movement on this issue one way or another uh, than, than I think any of the other issues, and we're seeing that played out again. Like pay equity, those new, you know, blue trifecta states. However, you want to say it, Maine. Uh, Vermont activity this week. So, Franklin, what, what, what's going on on the paid leave front? So, yeah, I mean, we've got a, we've got ongoing conversations in all those northeastern states. Um, you know, Maine has some some paid leave bills are being knocked around, both actually paid sick leave and paid family leave. Vermont Democrats responded to uh, Republican governors Phil Scott in Vermont and Sununu in New Hampshire, their proposal to do a bi-state paid leave program. And they came back and said, no, not good enough. And they're kind of rolling out their own plan. You know, it's it's pretty similar to a a plan that the governor there, I think, last go around had vetoed. You know, and it's a a mandate. And 
And so we're going to have a big conversation in a lot of these northeastern states as well as other parts of the country own this paid leave issue this year. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think one of the lessons is that, you know, it, it, it's happening everywhere and so many different places and companies are doing their own thing and, and you know, again, trying to at least compete for, you know, attract and retain employees. We're, we're kind of where we were with menu labeling 10 years ago with all these state and local things. And I think it's time, I think it's well past time in my own opinion, but, you know, the, the industry has to come together and figure out what they can collectively be for, what is, re, you know, in, in the sense of what will actually pass and figure out if it makes sense. I'm not saying it does. I'm just saying at least have a conversation. Does it make sense to go to Congress in a, in a, in a reasonable way and say, all right, we'll, we'll give on X, Y, and Z in, in favor of a federal preemption? That, that's, those conversations should have been happening vigorously a year ago. They haven't to any meaningful extent. And it, I think it's, it's, it's well past time. So I think, I think we need to kind of get it in gear on that issue. Um, and another one that we've been remiss on getting in gear in time, scheduling. But we had some interesting news out of Washington State on scheduling this week. Yeah, one, one more item, though, before we get out of paid leave. Um, Minnesota also, we had a bill introduced this week, um, 12 weeks of partial wage for, uh, for medical leave, including pregnancy, and an additional 12 weeks after the fact to care for a newborn or a family member. This would be a state-run insurance program. And uh, that payroll tax would be split uh, between employers and employees. A lot of details to be worked out here. You know, Minnesota, as we've talked about before, is the only divided legislature in the in the country. So there's an opportunity for employers certainly to be a part of this conversation and shape what this looks like. This may may end up becoming one of your kind of you know, model compromise bills. So it's going to be an interesting conversation there. So, Franklin, uh, switching to scheduling, we have a, a fairly onerous uh, scheduling bill that has been introduced in Washington State. And you would think, you know, in a normal in a normal world, that would have, uh, you know, pretty good chance of passage. But it doesn't seem to be the case this time around. What, what's what's going on there? I think the scuttlebutt around the Capitol is that there are other priorities that are... Scuttlebutt. Yeah, That's a good word. That are, I like that. That are uh, working their way to the, the top of the uh, agenda. Have no fear that Washington State, I predict, will one day be in the uh, in the scheduling game. So, you know, the question is, what what does the last couple weeks of session look like, and have those other priorities cleared out, and you know, compromise bill made it through and been approved, and and then there's time for them to dig into this, or does it wait for next session? But it, you know, the proposal that's under consideration looks like a lot of the proposals we've seen elsewhere: two weeks advance notice, penalties for shift changes record-keeping requirements. It's basically kind of your your standard, the standard stuff you've seen, and quite frankly, the stuff that's been pretty problematic for employers to comply with. And then switching on to the NLRB, Franklin, some activity as usual at our favorite pseudo-agency. Yeah, a little kind of nerdy and inside the, a uh, little bit inside baseball, but it's important. So, the NLRB oversees a lot of different things. One of the areas of the laws, you know, what is protected concerted activity, which is when workers and employees come together to talk about issues and then band together to affect change in the workplace. And so the Obama era NLRB took a very broad definition of that. Essentially, anything you did in the workplace would basically categorized as, uh, you know, protected concerted activity. Obviously, it's not a legal definition, but the Trump NLRB is narrowing that definition 
And there was a case, Allstate Maintenance, where essentially a worker was fired because he said, I'm not doing this job because we did a similar job a year before they didn't tip me. They were crappy tippers, so I'm not, I'm not going to take this assignment. And, he, and they said, you're fired. And under the previous standard, that probably would have amounted to protected concerted activity because he made that declaration in front of a group of people. The Trump NLRB found that that was not protected concerted activity because he didn't, it wasn't for the mutual aid of the group of workers. And so this is important in kind of these organizing campaigns and organizing efforts in a workplace. The greater latitude that protected concerted, the bigger that umbrella, kind of, how do I, is going to have a negative connotation, but you know the more that the union organizers can get away with, and the right. more they can push the line, and the more they can create division between management and the frontline workers, right? And the tighter that definition is, the harder it is for them. Exactly. So it's it's very notable, kind of in the labor organizing persuader, you know, union avoidance space. This is a really big deal, um, and this matters a lot. And this there are a lot of unfair labor practices thrown from either side own this issue in this space. So this is something that, that people that operate in that space watch this stuff closely, and it's notable. Yeah, and, 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 and it pertains to our last story here that, you know, as we've said, a theme for the last year is just because there is a log jam in the legislative branch of government doesn't mean the regulatory executive branch isn't doing stuff, right? And we see all this activity in LRB. OSHA this week was active, Franklin, trimming back some some injury reporting rules, right, that affect employers. Yeah, and I, I think it was uh, <clears throat> it was uh, Obama era reporting rule that uh, there were there were concerns over cybersecurity, putting all these workers information information through an online portal, um, and so that that rule was reversed as well. I, I think one of the themes we see at the agency level is a is a is a scaling back of these really onerous record keeping. I mean, the amount of time that an average small business person has to, to do with detailing records on this, that, and the other is, is and you know, you and I are in a small business and it's, a, it's astounding the, 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 the amount of compliance paperwork we have to do. So I can understand if you're running a, a, a franchise of a, of a restaurant or a retail, you know, that's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big burden. So lots still going on at the agency level. Uh, busy week, probably and, probably a little less than usual, um, but given the shutdown, given the shutdown, but, but yeah, but yes, you're right. Always, always work being done at the agency level because they are essential personnel, correct? If we'll see, I, so there's actually probably I don't want to get down too much of a tangent, but there's probably going to be a court challenge to the uh, overtime rule because advocates are arguing that they're advancing the overtime rule when that's non-essential personnel and they should be not advancing that that rule at all, that it should, any work and it should be halted during the government shutdown. So the overtime rule, when it finally is birthed, is going to probably face multiple legal challenges, but that's going to be one of them. Now the busy week, the beat goes on. And down the stretch they come! It's time for our Paul Revere segment, where we look down the road a bit and see what's coming around the corner. And as always, Carson Chandler joins us. So, Carson, what did you see in the news this week? So, you know, we, we tell our listeners every week, here's an article or two that, that are worth paying attention. Um, but I think, you know, for this week, 
the headline is this is a piece if you're if you're listening to our voices as you know exciting as they are uh this is a piece you have to read uh, it's an axios and the title is ceos under more pressure to save society and i think it's something that that this podcast has spent a lot of time focusing on since its inception but um, now there's actually data to th- back that's it exactly up right this this is exciting. validation it's, yeah. very, it's a big day here at the at the world headquarters of the line um, it, it's an Axios piece, right? And and basically the, the, the thrust, thrust of the piece is that, you know, while trust has eroded in government officials and in journalism, that trust and kind of where to go to solve problems is, is landing on the desks of CEOs more Because more. government's broken. Yep. Our normal institutions of problem solving yep. are, are broken. Yep. What we've been saying here forever is that more and more the business community is going to be looked upon to help be a, a, a partner in solving those problems. And this, this Edelman survey, basically this trust barometer, says it's time for CEOs to get in the game on this. That's right. And, and you know, again, kind of validating, it, it looks at different specific tactics and places where people expect those CEOs and those brands to play a role. And what is number one on the list, Mr. Kefauver? Leading change at the local level. That's right. Helping solve problems, mayors and city councils. And, they, you know, that's something that we, we talk about, we talk with our clients about, but it's nice to see it kind of validated here. So what does that mean? Does that mean that that means how does the restaurant industry, which is expert at workforce development and skills training, how do they partner with cities to make sure kids aren't left behind? How does the hospitality and tourism industry create opportunities for people trying to either get in the workforce for the first time or re-enter the workforce after being out of it for some given amount of time? But it's interesting that it isn't about national enterprises. It's 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 home. It's in the communities. It's on the block. And how are we making changes in our communities? And people are looking to CEOs to do that and for companies to do that. I know Mr. Coley has consistently talked about this in every presentation he's been in. Franklin, what's your take on all this? Y'all are doing surprisingly well, actually. I'm, I'm very, very impressed on your game today. I mean, the only thing I'd say to your point is uh, I think where brands get in trouble is where they try to reach and do things that they're not good at or they don't know how to do or they, they try to do stuff that's kind of out of their space. I think they would be smart to look to solve community problems that are in their space. And, you know, for entry-level employers, that's workforce development. Or, or you know, if you have a, bu- a big footprint, you know, retailers, it may make sense to focus on sustainability. There's plenty of issues that are important at the local level that fall within the space of uh, employers. They don't have to go out trying to solve all the world's problems. Kind of going, we're building off that. Have you guys seen the Gillette commercial? Um, there's a lot of talk the last couple of days as that's kind of hit the airwaves that, that you know, some people loved it, this Gillette commercial that's, that's this kind of, you know, kind of a Me Too commercial that, that, that you know, talks about traditional masculinity. And, and, you know, people are saying, some people love it, other people say, it's just a bridge too far. Why is a razor company getting into these, you know, these hot button social issues? And I think that's what Franklin's really talking about, too, is maybe a bridge too far for these companies. They're playing in a space that they just don't need to. That's right. I, I, I think you're, you're coming. It isn't, it, this is about branding and this is about messaging. This is an expectation by people that, that business leaders are going to help solve problems. Gillette's not talking about solving a problem there. They're highlighting a problem. They're highlighting yeah. inequality, but they're not offering up solutions to that in that commercial. What this poll is saying is that if you're a restaurant operator, help the mayor and school superintendents train these kids for the workforce. Right. What you do well is, help is opportunity roll up and your job training. Quit writing checks. Quit going to cardboard black tie galas. Quit handing out little minuscule foundation grants and roll up your sleeves and let's get 
busy solving the problems of these communities. And it isn't about branding, and it isn't about good PR. It's, it's, it's the expectation of people that are your customers and your employees. It's, it's an expectation. We've been talking about it for years, and finally there's some validation to it. So it's a, it's a great article for you to highlight. Good deal. See, we were right. <laughs> I just said throw that in there. <laughs> What is the what is the line of demarcation between essential staff and non-essential staff? You know, at the federal the federal level, all around DC right now, there are essential staff reporting to work, non-essential staff not reporting. If to work. If the machine breaks down, if you're not there, then you're essential, and if the machine goes on like no one noticed, then you're not essential. Did Renzel participate in the in this the end of this pod in the scorecard? I don't think so. No. Hmm. See you next week. Oh,